Welcome back to Are You a Robot? Today we've got a delightful conversation with Lisa and Anne. Super great to be here. So my name is Lisa Talia Moretti. I am a digital sociologist and I am living in London. I'm currently working at the Ministry of Justice and uh, for the UK government. And I'm also an associate lecturer. So I do a couple of lecturing gigs uh, every year at Cardiff University, at Goldsmiths, um, part of University of London and at University of Plymouth. Hi, I'm Anne. It's also really great to be here. I'm an art consultant and experienced strategist living in Amsterdam, but I go back and forth between the Netherlands and uh, the US. And I work a lot with um, different brands and private art collectors on building different art collections and you know, using artists for different purposes for their companies. Welcome back to Are You a Robot? This is a series where we aim to explain and tackle some of the greatest challenges within AI ethics, data governance, and related technologies. The way that we're doing that is by gathering the best and the brightest minds in their respective fields to come on here and talk with us about how they are seeing the current state of the world, if there is anything that we should be particularly cautious about or just a general knowledge dump on what they are doing. I love talking to people about their different passions, and so this is a great way for me to do that. It's an excuse for that. I will mention, though, if you also enjoy some of this AI ethics banter, jump into our Slack channel. We've got a whole community that we're building around these topics so I would encourage you, look at the link below, click on it, and introduce yourself. Let us know what you're working on and what you're doing, what you're passionate about within the AI ethics space. Okay, before we jump into the full conversation with Lisa and Anne, let's talk about our sponsor, Ethics Grade. They are an ESG ratings company. If you do not know what ESG ratings are, that is where you study the non-financial impact that a company has on the world. Now, Ethics Grade is doing something pretty novel. They are studying the AI ethics programs and data governance programs that these companies have. So you can go to Ethics Grade website and download all of these scorecards on different companies such as Twitter or Facebook or Alibaba, Amazon, you name it. They've probably got a scorecard for them. And you can see which of these companies are actually doing what they say they're doing in their marketing? I find it fascinating because I was actually thoroughly surprised by some of these companies that I found and what they are doing and the ratings that they got from Ethics Grade. So it's fun to play around with and you get to see what companies are actually doing behind the veil, peeking behind their PR team and looking a little bit deeper. That is at ethicsgrade.io. Go check it out. And without further ado, we're going to be talking with Lisa and Nan. Are you a robot? Welcome to both of you. It is very exciting to have you on here. I have been doing a bit of research into seeing is believing. And I think we should start by talking about that and what it is, and maybe, Anne, you can kick this off and let us know, what is this project? Sure, so Isin is Believing is um, a project that Lisa and I had started, I guess, in uh, like late 2018. And essentially, I had been working on my master's degree, um, looking at AI tools and creativity, so how AI helps or hurts creativity. Um, and as I was doing this research, I kept coming across images of how AI was portrayed in the media. Um, and I was actually taking Lisa's digital research method course at the time and really came to her and said, this is so bizarre. Why do these images look like this? Um, and she and I started to really think together of how we could investigate this kind of question um, and this issue and what that kind of meant, like how we could improve it or or what was the feeling around it, which is how this project came to be. Yeah. So there's a lot of cool stuff that I've been reading up on when it comes to seeing is believing. And you touched on some of it right there, that there's the consistent thread of images that we see. And 
maybe we should explain to people what that means and what exactly is that consistent thread. I imagine all of the listeners out there kind of know what we're talking about, but it would be great to hear it from from you all, the the ones who have a bit more authority on this. So I guess um, some of the images that we think about, just to start with, or like if you think about the shiny robot, right? The shiny white robots, the shiny silver robots, um, you know, the glittering brains that tend to be blue and kind of like weirdly connected in this kind of network effect. Those are the kinds of images really that's triggered Anne and I <laughs> and um, got us to really, you know, start, start the research project. Yeah. I why are they always blue? That's something that I noticed. And I didn't realize it. I didn't consciously know it until I was reading some of your work. And I recognized later, like, yeah, there is normally a blue tint to that. Have you figured that one out yet? Well, I think, you know, we started looking at color psychology and why certain colors are used in advertising and in marketing to kind of generate a feeling from whatever audience they're trying to achieve. So, you know, red is oftentimes energy. Like I think a lot of people think of red as urgent and a problem, but it is also something about like energy and awakening. Um, And blue is really about kind of calm and sort of absorbing information at sort of a steady rate, so to speak. So, you know, there's no real scholarship that we have come across that talks specifically about why AI images are blue. But we think it might have something to do with it's this kind of blue is not this neutral color, but it's a it's a color that is very pleasing. It's very easy. Um, It evokes kind of a calm feeling in people when they see it. And so perhaps this is something that's used just to not, you know, be red. So it's not alarming. It's not yellow. It's not alarming. It's it's this kind of more neutral palette. And you also start to see blue come across quite a lot in technology companies. So if you think about, you know, like major technology companies and their logos, you know, Facebook, the big blue app, you know, Twitter, the the blue bird, think about Microsoft, you know, and very often that like M is written in blue. Uh, So, you know, we do see, you know, IBM is another one that uses a lot of blue palettes. So we do see blue as as a color being adopted quite a lot within the technology industry not just only in advertising, but also in kind of that logo and branding space too. So very much kind of ex- inspired from that extended color palette, I think. And it is a color also that inspires trust. So in a lot of different studies, blue is also associated with you trust something more, an image more, a logo more, if it actually incorporates blue. I think green was another one, but blue came up the most. Another thing that I found interesting in uh, one of the papers that you wrote was not only is it the visual aspects of things, but also the way that we talk about the different types of AI and how this can be misleading. And so maybe we can dive into some of the ways that are problematic in how current visualization or just language around AI can can be problematic. I don't know who should start this off, Anne. <laughs> I know. I was thinking, well, I thought maybe maybe for you it's it speaks, right? Like I think yeah. it's technical blindness. And then that kind of leads into the visual. So I'm gonna I'm gonna hand that microphone to you. For the okay. beginning. <laughs> I'll, I'll I'll start talking a little bit about um, sort of the language piece around this. So um, before uh, before Anne and I started working on is saying believing, I was working on a research um, paper um, called It Speaks, and this was looking at the use of language uh, um, within technologies, and I was particularly interested in the kind of biases that appear within large language data sets that are then going on to train chatbots and voice-activated AI. And one of the things that came through as, as one of the findings in that paper is the kind of language that we use within technology teams and the way that very often when you have multidisciplinary teams working together, one of the kind of core um, challenges is finding a common language that you can talk about the technology and talk about the problem that you're working on that both teams understand. 
So for a very long time, um, technology for decades has been really rooted in science and technology. Um, and sorry, it's been really rooted in um, technology. I'm going to go back and say that again. So for decades, for a very long time, technology has really been rooted in, in science, engineering, maths, statistics. And it's only really quite recently where we've seen an influx of the digital humanities. And so one of the things that's really quite interesting working with multidisciplinary teams is, is seeing how the digital humanities uh, scholars and professionals working with um, those from a more technical background um, to come together to kind of work on the same kind of problems and how very often language stands in the way of actually coming up with a very multidisciplinary, holistic approach to solving a problem. And kind of thinking about this this kind of rooting within um, engineering and science, um, it's very much that kind of thinking is very much um, is, is around reductionist thinking. So taking a really big problem and reducing it and reducing it and reducing it into smaller parts in order to analyze and test and, you know, work on experiments. And working on that kind of language piece and then coming into is saying believing, I started to see the same kind of pattern emerge where what people were doing is taking a really complex topic like artificial intelligence and tackling it, first of all, from a very scientific maths statistics kind of approach. But then secondly, that kind of next layer, reducing this very complex technology, this very complex system into this very reductionist approach. So taking something like as complex as AI and then saying, cool, here's a photo of like a shiny blue brain or here's a photo of a, of a shiny white robot, mm-hmm. right? Um, and I'm going to kind of pause there and hand over to Anne because she can then talk a little bit more about like the kind of unpacking of some of these images and, um, and some of the things that we found within, yeah, within the visual space. Yeah, I mean, exactly like Lisa was saying, where it was taking these kind of complex situations and boiling it down to an image that was that that are in essence so abstract that they kind of lose meaning in a way. So you've got um, circuit boards or binary code or um, blue brains and you know shiny robots, as Lisa was saying, but and in so many instances, there's no context around what this is really supposed to be or how this technology is used or what's the task that it's trying to convey. And I think for us, you know, when we're looking at a lot of these, if you look at stock imagery as a whole and how it's chosen, it's really, you know, an art director goes, what is the kind of quickest way to sort of, um, you know, it's, it's a mix of clickbait, it's a mix of explainability. And talking to, you know, like Getty Images, for example, in this real challenge of we need that clickbait, but we also know that these images are telling nothing. They're sort of this this kind of decorative thing that actually isn't producing any meaning. Um, And so when Lisa and I really were looking at that and looking at, you know, that in the context of the research that she had done before and seeing that similarity of this miscommunication we started really thinking of, well, could we, you know, myself as more of an art director and obviously her as a digital sociologist come together and produce better images or what would be better images for mass media? Um, and that's really where we kind of landed when we started to work on this project and also develop a brief based on the research that we had done to kind of distribute to different artists. So I find it fascinating what you're talking about when it comes to these large, complex ideas being distilled down into something simple like a photograph and how much information or how much is lost in that process and then how we're left with nothing really as we look at this, we don't get a good sense of what is actually happening and what we should be coming away with. So maybe we can talk about that a little bit more and how that can be problematic and what some dangers are there. I'm happy to go. Lisa, you can go. (laughs) It's up to you. Um, I mean, I think some of the, you know, the harm in that is there's, where's the relatability, 
right? Like, how are you relating to this image? So if it's this kind of disembodied hand or of a robot, you know, with binary code as a background, what are you supposed to take away from that? So for me, the harm is, you know, people keep associating AI within the sci-fi channels, right? With the Terminator, with what is what is being done in Hollywood, what's being done in entertainment. Um, and Lisa had come up with a survey, of course, that we had sent out to, you know, anyone basically, like not a specific audience, but everyone to kind of ask, you know, how do you feel about AI? What do you think about it? And a lot of the answers from sort of general public were really tied to those ideas that are communicated through entertainment. So I think the harm is, you know, the explainability factor, obviously. I think it's the relatability. I think it's also the, you know, democratization of AI and keeping it within the sphere, like Lisa was talking about, of sort of science and engineering and maths, where actually what I think people don't quite realize is that AI is very much a part of their everyday life. It's in their, the smartphone that they use all the time. It's, you know, it's, it's completely, it's how they find their directions, you know what I mean, of where they need to go. And you don't really have images that are showing those kind of use scenarios, those sort of tasks. And I think that's where we want to kind of come in and look at how that can be improved. That's so true. Real fast, uh, before Lisa, you have a crack at it. But it's so funny you say that because, yeah, it's in our our maps or it's how we get recommended things on YouTube or Netflix or whatever. And it's really funny that there's no there's no images of like, a robot behind the scenes of a Netflix recommendation engine, right? We never see that. <laughs> we don't see like ways that they're trying to show us AI is powering how what we see on Amazon to buy next. And so w- whenever we do see AI, it is very much like this, oh, it's going to be like that iRobot kind of archetype or or the brain, as you mentioned before, and somehow it's got circuits around it and it's going to be all powerful. And so all of these images that it it portrays are very misleading in that sense because, A, we're not quite there yet. Like, I don't know if you've had a conversation with Siri recently, but <laughs> she's she's great. It's incredible technology breakthroughs, but it's not able to like have a deep philosophical conversation with you by any means. Uh, it's She's barely even... Or, it is barely able to uh, figure out, you know, how to set you a reminder on your phone. So maybe uh, along those lines, or Lisa, if you had anything else that you wanted to tag on to what Anne was saying. Yeah, just to, I mean, just, just to unpack, you know, and kind of echo so much of what we're talking about around, you know, we rely on mass media so much for public education you know, and when, you know, a really good case in point is like the current COVID pandemic and how mass media was so instrumental in getting people information about where to go, what to do, how to understand government guidance, you know, things to know about the vaccine, you know, the rollout program. And, you know, there were well, a lot changing of changing about the truth every day. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, anyway, so much sorry. of our mass media <laughs> has got so, you know, it's not just it, our mass media is not ever just a headline, right? Our mass media comes with images. And we need to really remember that we live in a very visual society where a lot of people are visual learners. And so visuals are important, like visuals are part of the story. And so we don't pay you know, Anne and I have said many times, like the visuals and around AI is just lazy. There's a lot of lazy imagery, right? There, where they're kind of really just reaching for, you know, the kind of lowest hanging fruit, you know, artificial intelligence, cool. Like let's pull intelligence. So that's going to be a brain, right? Shiny blue brain. Cool. Slap that photo next to that headline. Um, and so we, you know, part of the, the challenge for me is really recognizing and being cognizant of the fact that images are important for public education. And if we don't think carefully about what kind of images we're putting out there, we are actually doing the public an injustice in actually allowing them to become 
critical thinking, contributing members of civil society to be able to shape the AI narrative and to also start thinking critically about where this technology shows up in their lives. And how so? Like, how do you mean by that? Uh, and especially along the point of the critical thinking and we're basically taking that from them. Yeah, so I think a lot of people have come to start to associate, um, you know, very much to what Anne was um, talking about earlier. We started to associate artificial intelligence with robotics. And while there are lots of robots that have um, artificial intelligence within them, that is not the only time that artificial intelligence shows up in your life. And so you are engaging and interacting with artificial intelligence without you even knowing and realizing it. And because we ha we haven't really spent enough time educating the public with the ways that artificial intelligence, uh, they are interacting with it and potentially impacting like outcomes in their life, it's very difficult for people to push back against that system or to demand a better service or to raise a complaint or to voice a concern because you're always, you know, potentially thinking that AI is going to show up as a robot, right? But, you know, it's, it's more than that. So I think if we start part of like the importance for me of part of producing better images is very much linked to this idea of better public education about this technology and as a result, raising a more critical thinking public. Um, and and I, I wonder if now is a quite a, is a good time for you to chat a bit more about like some of the research we did around performative and decorative images and the kind of difference between yeah, performative and decorative images and like the role that each of them have played really. Well, thank you for teeing that up so nicely. <laughs> like, it's a good segue. Um, so yeah, exactly. So we, when we were looking at images, you know, there, there's the one side where you look at it from a fine art perspective, right? So we, we looked at it from an art history perspective first. So the study of signs, the study of semiotics, like, you know, we noticed interesting slash weird things like robots being posed in the, you know, the positions of the thinker, like Rodin's the thinker and, you know, references to humanism and, and the Sistine Chapel and creation and all these, all these kind of weird things. But in any case, you know, looking at it from an art history perspective in fine art is interesting and how artists create things that they're inspired by is also very interesting but it also stays sometimes in a very conceptual realm that when you actually want to make it more in mass media, doesn't necessarily have the impact that you want. So we also thought we need to kind of take this out of the idea of the exhibition and really apply to mass media, which is when you start to focus on things like brand design and advertising design and how images are used more in that kind of way versus like in a beautiful white box exhibition. And so we started looking at different, um, you know, advertising theories and things like that. And we came across literature around performative versus decorative images that really spoke to us because, you know, if you're looking in terms of advertising, like what is a performative image? It's essentially an image where you derive meaning from it. And it's basically like you could imagine telling a thousand word story out of that image. So, I mean, off the top of my head, you know, you can think of really powerful brands like Coca-Cola and the polar bear at Christmas and the kind of, you know, meaning that, that, that people get immediately when they look at it of like nostalgia, Christmas, kindness, all these things um, without having to say a lot for decorative images it's essentially that it's decoration, it's motif, it's not really something that you're going to get much of a, I mean, we use the word experience nowadays so much, right? Like everyone's looking for an experience and all these kinds of things. But in reality, like this is still what these images are trying to do is give you some sort of meaning, give you some sort of experience. And decorative images really fall flat in that. And so when we started to look at that terminology and then looking at all these stock images and, you know, things that we were looking at in terms of AI visuals, we started to really see like how so many of them fit into this category of decorative image and how just historically speaking and through, if you want to go all academic with it, that's not actually going to have the impact. 
So then for us, we're like, okay, so we ask ourselves the question of how can we evolve this visual language into something that's more performative um, and looking at, you know, different case studies and how that's done. And for us, it really came into, you know, the kind of artist that we should be working with as well. Like what's the kind of artist that is trained and skilled at creating performative imagery? Who's, who's skilled at creating powerful visual communication? Who are those people? And for us, actually, it comes into a lot of illustrators. So we see very talented, skilled illustrators for the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the BBC, all these different publications that are hired and commissioned to talk about certain subjects or use case scenarios through an illustration, which I think part of the exciting part is it's not just a still illustration anymore. It becomes a GIF. It becomes a video um, and this kind of animation. And a lot of these individuals, a lot of these artists are very talented at taking an idea and capturing it in an image. Or maybe it's a series of image, but if we, if we want to think about it in terms of an image. So we started to shift our focus away from, again, this idea of mixed media artists and artists working in all these different ways and thought, okay, if we want to really create performative images, why don't we focus on artists that are trained in that, that are historically have done well in that? And that's kind of where we're at now of discussing this kind of topic with illustrators, getting their feedback as well in terms of what's their experience, how do they get their briefs, and then kind of looking at evolving visuals that are performative in the sense that we're going to focus on more specific context around AI. Like what's the task we want to talk about? What's the job we want to talk about? Um, Which I think in the end will be more successful. I think it will be more impactful from a, from an, from a visual standpoint. Yeah. You mentioned something that I continuously talk about and that's how many different use cases there are for AI right now and how different each one of them is. And like Lisa was talking about, it's very much these days, if you're not really deep in the technology, you think you come to associate AI and robotics. And those who are in deep in the technology know that there are plenty of use cases without robotics for AI. And so what you're talking about there and giving briefings to different visual artists on different use cases to see how they will create images with that seems much more fascinating and captivating. And like you were talking about, it's taking out that laziness Mm -hmm. of just slapping on a robot picture or some kind of brain picture. And so uh, along those lines too, one thing that I thought about with the whole human media or mass media in general is that simplified narrative that we love to give to everything. And I know that people, when I was working in cybersecurity, everyone that was working in cybersecurity had problems with the hacker being portrayed as a guy in a hoodie. (laughs) And that was the same thing (laughs) that you would see over and over. And then maybe it would be some matrix code behind them. And it was Uh a lot of green that was being used. And like dark sunglasses, right? Like looking down dark sunglasses. Yeah. Yeah. Or you could barely see their face because it was behind a laptop and it was always a laptop. It was never like a full desktop setup. It was like the nerd you didn't want to find in the dark alley. That's like, that was the brief. (laughs) Yeah. And, but I can, I can think about so many different stereotypes or Mm -hmm. or visual stereotypes i guess we could call them for so many different things like if i think about california it's the surfing or the beaches and then you have like all of these simple narratives that get distilled down they're complex subjects right california is obviously not just surfing and beaches and hackers are not only people in hoodies And so, and it's much more complex than that, but it gets distilled down into this picture that, as you said, it doesn't really leave us with anything. It doesn't make us think. And it doesn't, it's not actively having us try to 
figure out what is what is going on. And so maybe this is a good segue into building these new types of pictures or the visual image imagery that you would like to see. What else needs to happen? I mean, you kind of talked about this, Anne, a little bit on better briefings and getting better artists or or just artists that are are more experienced with this type of thing. But are there other ways that we can try to get a movement started towards not having to see robots all the time when it comes to anything that is talked about with AI? Well, um, I can jump in quickly on this because I have two things that come to mind about this for me. One is, um, and Lisa will definitely, I think you will agree with me on this one. So when we started talking to it's the safer, it's the safer way. Um, no, but you know, so there's, so I had two comments about that. Um, on one hand, when we would talk to different organizations, you know, and people who are interested in these images, it's like everyone keeps wanting this holistic image, this like golden image of like, okay, we need new images of AI, but actually can we just create a set of five that then we'll use? That doesn't solve our problem. That doesn't solve the problem. So there's no magic one image for AI. Like to your point of like, there's no magic one image for California or whatever. Um, and I think we also have to look at the trends and the times that we live in. Like we were talking earlier, experience is, you know, maybe it's a buzzword now, maybe it's annoying to hear that word, but people are looking for more personalization. They're looking for stuff that is relatable to them, that is going to give them some sort of personal meaning and experience. That's how brands are moving. That's how companies are moving. So this kind of concept of like, holistic imagery or one size fits all design and creation, we're already moving past that. So these images for me have to do that as well. And whether that's, okay, we need more budget in order to create more images, or it's, or it's working with specific companies to do things that are specific to their audiences. Um, but I think we have to move away from this idea of holistic imagery and one size fits all because AI is everywhere. It impacts every kind of industry, whether people want to admit it or realize it. That's how that goes. So I think it is a situation of perhaps better briefs to artists, which I think is also bringing them in the conversation. So like Lisa was talking about with sociotechnical blindness and all these different departments working together using different language to talk. It's also about the collaborations of the different people who are working in these fields to become more aware of what everything is, right? In order to create things that make sense to more people on a whole. Lisa, do you agree with that? Is that something you would agree with? I do. I totally <laughs> agree with that. I totally agree with that. I think um, I think one of the kind of biggest things for us to really realize is to is to really kind of, is to really acknowledge the importance of images within within the work that we're doing when it comes to reporting on AI and creating AI narratives. And you know, there are two elements of perception. And the one is the first element of perception is about it helps you understand, right? So it helps with you building your knowledge. It helps with comprehension around a particular topic. But the other thing around perception is around feelings and your kind of emotional response that you get when you see something. So, you know, when we think about images, we need to remember, like, you know, what we're putting out there in the world is helping people understand this topic, is helping somebody build knowledge about this topic. And it's also creating an emotional, visceral response to this topic, whether somebody will fear something or whether they will start to feel good when they see something, right? So that's the kind of first thing is this, acknowledge, uh, this acknowledgement about the importance of images, I think, that needs to happen. The second thing, just to stress the importance of what Anne just said, is around bringing more digital humanities into the technical realm and getting digital humanities scholars, artists, sociologists, anthropologists, you know, creative directors like Anne, getting people working with technologists to get them to better, um, better think about how their products are going to land within society. And I don't think technologists can all do this alone, right? And 
for something I say so often is, you know, technology is not a product, it's a system. You know, we often think about technology as being your phone or a social media app or, you know, these isolated products. But technology is so integrated into our lives that it becomes part of like the social fabric in which we live in. So it becomes part of, you know, the system of knowledge, the system of power, the system of race, et cetera, all of these things. Um, and the third thing that I think we need to do in, to build a movement around this is to get people thinking when they are briefing their images um, and, you know, to build an Anne's point about like, how important cultural context is. You're not going to get this like universal AI image. You need to think about the cultural context in which your story is going to land. And then further to that, the thing that we were talking about earlier is instead of taking this very reductionist approach to, to visuals, thinking much more about an outcomes-based approach. So what would this technology allow for somebody to do in their life? How could it help shape the future? And thinking about the kind of more long-term effects as opposed to trying to just report on the here and the now all the time will help us to shape briefs to artists that will be much more interesting for the artists themselves, but actually much more beneficial for society in the long run. Oh, I love that, the outcomes approach and how a creative mind would be able to take that and run with it. And really, it, like you said, it gives the artist something much more interesting and engaging to interact with as opposed to the here and now, uh, whatever it, it means for that right now. But let's look ahead in the future and see what, what else it can do. And so, Lisa, there was something you said before, too, that I think we should probably highlight here. And you talked about it in your TED Talk, too, which I was watching just a while ago. And I thought it is super important to mention this because when we are lazy with the photos or the images that we use, and then people do not have a good grasp on what exactly this is trying to convey, then there's that disconnect. And then people can't stand up and be part of the conversation. And so maybe you can dive into that and why that's so important. Uh, so first of all, thank you so much for watching my TED Talk. That means a lot to me. <laughs> I really appreciate it. Um, that, so, is, that, is, that is the gift that keeps on giving. It's so good. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much, Anne. It's very kind. This is why we're friends. <laughs> I listen to Anne and she compliments me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so... This is a topic I feel really, really passionately about. So I feel hugely passionate about the democratization of technology. And I feel really passionately about it because um, issues and themes of around justice, I care a huge amount about. And I sometimes really worry in society that technology belongs to the technologists and that they have so much power and so much control over the technology that we consume in our lives and enforce so many experiences upon us that we kind of sleepwalk ourselves into. And then before it's maybe too late, we've actually engaged in some pretty poor behavior. We've developed some really shocking habits and that are very difficult to kind of reverse and, and to come out of. And so for me, I think something that I... I try to do very often in my work, and perhaps this is in the kind of tech ethics space that I work in, is I try to get people talking about and engaging in technology in ways that they feel that they are able to do. So, you know, re and the first thing is around language. So simplifying the language so that people feel like, oh my God, like I don't need um, you know, a BSc degree in computer science, or I don't need a philosophy degree to be able to engage in conversations about technology. Um, and this is one of the reasons I feel so passionately about this project, because you have to meet people where they are in order to get them to care about something. And we need to work harder at doing that, at meeting people where they are, and, and helping them kind of build up their confidence to engage in a topic. And if we are able to do that, 
And if we are able to build confidence and build knowledge in a topic that is a, that is so important as technology, we will be able to democratize technology a lot more and spread and the, out that power. And society will be able to get a bit more power back and not feel so enslaved by so many of these tech companies. So for me, that's the kind of real importance around this is, is building confidence and knowledge in, in, a, in a topic that people feel quite isolated from because they don't feel they have the expertise to be able to participate. And for me, I think everyone can participate in this conversation because it's, it's a topic that is so, enga- is so integrated into everyone's life. And, and you should feel that you have the ability to speak out um, and to voice concern where, where there is concern around or where you feel concerned um, about what, how this is impacting upon your life. I would imagine a lot of times, especially for myself, I feel concerned about XYZ, but I'm not sure where I can voice that. Do you have any recommendations there? Yeah, that's a great, really, really good point. And I think this is part of the challenge um, around this kind of topic is people don't know where to go. So we, very many people don't feel connected to a community or don't feel connected to um you know, kind of civil action group to be able to raise any concerns or complaints. Um, And I do think that there is a role for governments to play here, to play a much more important role in helping people voice concerns um, and helping people um, to be able to help, help people to be able to get those kind of powerful technology companies to be accountable. Um, and so I, I don't have a huge amount of resources, unfortunately, to, to kind of share with people um, over this over this call because a huge amount of resources don't really exist. But you know, there are organisations like the Mozilla Foundation. There are organisations like Tactical Tech. Um, there are organisations like Ada Lovelace Institute, the Alan Turing Institute, who do a phenomenal job of making sure um, and kind of like auditing in some ways um, the technology industry, raising concerns, um, you know, starting petitions, lobbying governments, um, even, you know, people like Black Lives Matter have done a tremendous job of um, calling out uh, any kind of surveillance technologies and also racial profiling technologies and the impact that that has on black and brown communities. So there are lots of those kinds of groups where even though they might not be directly connected to technology, like Black Lives Matter, they are very powerful communities that can actually raise uh, raise concerns and kind of get them into public spaces so that they can be debated. Yeah, makes complete sense. And it is very much, I think, we feel like, oh, it's, I'm not, I don't like what Facebook is doing, or I don't like what insert big gigantic tech company is doing, but I don't have any power to change it because it's either I just delete my account and say goodbye and I don't play by their rules or I I play by their rules and I have to go along with whatever it is they're doing. And so it's interesting that you say that. And I also have felt that before, like, when I don't like something and I don't want to be the person who is telling every friend why I don't like it and being like just complaining to my friends and they're like, yeah, well, that's what you get. That's the world we live in. That's kind of the, what I'm met with sometimes. And so it's interesting you mentioned though, the Mozilla Foundation and like the Turing Institute, because those are great projects that are doing some wonderful things and i'm sure they're open to hearing from the public and so it's very much like yeah maybe next time that i don't like something i might write somebody on the mozilla foundation or the turing institute that's if i'm really really upset about it why not right yeah it seems more productive than twitter yeah (laughs) you know yeah, exactly. Or Reddit. Complaining or, about Twitter yeah. on Twitter. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe we can uh, we can talk a little bit more about something else that you all mentioned before, which was the socio-technical blindness. 
And that term got thrown around in the beginning when we were talking, but I'd like to dive into it a little more just to figure out what is, what is that and why is it important? I'm going to definitely hold that microphone over to Lisa because she is <laughs> the expert in the sociotechnical right, blindness. I just borrowed her theories from my own stuff. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Super happy to talk about sociotechnical blindness. So um, this was a term that actually came up in the work, um, in the research work that I was doing uh, when I was looking at um, language. And um, sociotechnical blindness actually comes from a paper, 2017 paper um, called Reframing AI Discourse, and it's by two academics named Johnson and Videcchio. Um, and they really discuss how kind of the multiple roles that humans play in the creation, the design, and the deployment of artificial intelligence. Um, and but what they talk about is the kind of blindness and how um, it's caused major problems. And kind of the first thing is that many people think about when they talk about when they think about artificial intelligence. Um, they think about this kind of AI as being really uncontrollable, right? Because they hear this, this word autonomous machine. And so they hear this word autonomy and they think about this autonomy as in terms of human autonomy, but they fail to see all of these people, right? Um, that are actually in the background controlling the machine. So one of the reasons that that's really problematic is that it removes human agency from the creation of these machines. And it also, as a result of that, removes accountability, right? So as a result, it's like, oh, it wasn't all of these people's fault. It was the machine's fault, right? But actually, like, there are people behind the machines that should be taking accountability for their creations. Um, and kind of the, the second term, the, the second kind of major issue that this plays leans on the first of what I've just been talking about is the, the essential role that humans play in, in the life and times of machines, essentially. So what so often happens, and the reason they kind of come across this term, sociotechnical blindness, is that there are all of these people in the background, but all of the screens and all of the machines that we're presented with create a kind of blindness to the people who are in the background. And so we start to not understand and see the huge amounts of agency that people actually have in creating the machines. Um, and again, you know, accountability causes huge challenges. And like, again, like what we were talking about earlier, who do you go to? You feel like, who do I go to to raise a concern about this, right? If I have a problem with Facebook, like how do I raise, how do I lodge a complaint? Or, you know, because it's just a massive organization and the only thing I know how to engage with Facebook is through the app or through Instagram or through some of their other like kind of products that they create. So that is this idea of sociotechnical blindness and, um, and how it sort of presents itself in, its re in our research that we do. Mm. That's fascinating also. And this brings up something that I love to talk about on this series, and that is what we've been kind of harping on for the last 45 minutes uh, and the need for diversity when you are creating the different uh, ML products or AI products and how we shouldn't feel like it's only tech people that need to be involved in this. And there are roles for others that are not coding. And so maybe in, in you all's experience, you can talk a little bit about different ways that you feel other people besides the engineers can get involved in these development processes as we have been talking about, like artists that are giving better images. Right. That's one way that is very concrete and very, very important. And as we've been mentioning, but other ways that people who are not in tech or I shouldn't say in tech, but people who are not actually writing the code can be part of the design process. So 
I mean, there's been a real rise, obviously, in diversity and inclusivity training and diversity and inclusivity officers. So I think from from that standpoint, it would be good to kind of start to include figures like that that are trying to really understand how to make their organizations more diverse and inclusive as a whole, and then how that can be reflected in whatever they're putting out to the public. So whether that's the branding or the advertising, things like that. Um, Lisa and I did look at and are still looking at with the project, you know, how gender is treated in these visual, these AI visuals, how race is treated in these AI visuals. Um, And in terms of gender, you know, it was actually a bit split in terms of what the robot was. Was it male or was it female? Was it gender neutral? Um, Which we were kind of surprised by. But the actual sort of figure of it and the, the, the racial characteristics were very much Caucasian on a whole. So, you know, it was this kind of um, classicist sort of approach to designing the body, um, you know, not really particularly interesting and very much based on white bodies. So I think that has to change anyway, because that's not relatable. It just puts the it, it again puts these images in the category of of seeming like they have no depth and they're not relatable and they don't really show what what we need them to show for this day and age. Um, but I don't know, Lisa. What do you think in terms of? So I think definitely sociologists. I would say the diversity inclusivity officers. Um, you know, artists. Obviously, who, who else would you yeah. think to? I think there's a really there's a really interesting rise of digital humanities and technology teams mm. that are now being recognized and you know I think um I've been really p- pleasantly surprised and thrilled to see the number of user researchers who are actually entering the field of technology mm. and are now being employed more and more in in tech teams. Um I think you know um user experience designers and especially those who have accessibility training to think about like additional needs that mm. their their user base may have you know if we think about um you know accessibility not just from a medical model but from a social model and think about the additional needs that somebody might have like whether that's a situational need or just a, a temporal need you know somebody breaking their arm right like like how do you design for that person or somebody who is in a very busy restaurant and needs to take a call? Like, you know, it's a situational need that they have that where accessibility can come into to play. Um, I would love to see more anthropologists and more sociologists being hired in technical teams to better understand culture, to better understand society, and to be able to work mm. with technologists, not just on the the user research piece, which is very much focus very much on that kind of individual one-to-one, you know, individual user testing, but thinking much more about like the societal needs. How do we design for a community? How do we design for a society, which is quite different to the kind, the, some of the methodologies that user researchers um, adopt. Um, And, you know, part of the, the sociological and anthropological work is thinking about that unintended consequences once we launch the product, right? So let's think about like, when we launch this product, like how, what are the different kinds of systems that this technology is going to interact with and what are the potential like outcomes that we are going to see and how do we mitigate some of the risk that, um, that potentially might um, come up you know, during this launch? And then I think um, a role that I would like to see more of that I think is slowly starting to filter through is um, in the space of philosophy, actually, and um, seeing philosophers being hired a bit more to consider some of those bigger existential questions that we need to start asking ourselves about the relationship with technology, about the relationship that we're going to have with robots, the impact that technology will have on our moral characters, you know, how to design moral machines, indeed, if it is even possible to design moral machines, Um, you know, thinking about data and, um, you know, some of the questions that come up around data and its role in shaping how we know the world um, and um, how we come to know new things about the world and how do we talk about that. So those are some of the new sort of like digital humanities degrees, I think, and roles that will be in tech, but not necessarily technical. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's funny you say the sociologist and and also the philosopher and thinking about ways that we, especially when it comes to a philosopher, 
ways that we interact with tech and then also where should we not be putting tech? Like where's that line of, yeah, I I think I talked to somebody who was, who was mentioning, we don't want to have a robot be giving news to someone that they have cancer, right? There are some things that need that human touch. And so that's the role of a philosopher and potentially some of these other roles that you were speaking of and to decide like where that line is and what still needs that human touch. And because it's, we're moving very quickly to that, into that Mm. direction. Right. And I Mm. know that there are some places that have robots that are, are being like outpatient care and they're trying to help with different aspects of the health system. And so you really need to start looking at the, as you mentioned, the unintended consequences of those different parts uh, that we wouldn't think of until later it happens. And then when it happens, we realize "Mm, maybe that's not the best user experience. (laughs) And so it's, uh, and the last thing I'll say on that, which I find fascinating is trying to design for a community as opposed to just designing for one person is something that I hadn't thought about before and how that would change the design and when you are creating these different systems. So what else I wanted to touch on, and you mentioned, Anne, and you talked about the ways that robots are portrayed and they are normally portrayed as uh, with the Caucasian body. And I'm just wondering, like, if we actually put time and energy into creating interesting images, like, I feel like the robot is just going to be taken out of the picture completely. Is Or is that just an assumption that I have? Do you feel like that also? I mean, I think, I think that would be nice in many, many scenarios, especially because the robots that are shown aren't exactly what robots are in real life either, right? (laughs) I mean, we do have obviously the figurative robots in some aspects, and and a lot of that is portrayed through entertainment. And then, of course, like Lisa and I were talking about Sophia also earlier of this kind of robot that needs to be figurative. But there, you know, there are studies of how people relate to a figure, right? Like something that has human characteristics. And Lisa, remind me, because this is more on a technological thing. So what is it, the valley of what, where you kind of go too far in the human aspects and then it becomes weird and then if you go too low, exactly. And I think, I, I don't think that we're going to release from figurative kind of representation because I think there's still a relatability factor with it. But I think that, um, you know, the, the robot itself will become less about this kind of where do we pull from classical Greek Roman sculpture and in art history and transform this into a body that means nothing. And I think it will become something that's maybe more related to what we actually see around us. At least I like hope. Like the rumba. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, like the rumba. Like- People forget that that's a robot, right? Like people or, forget, or, like you know, yeah, yeah, or like Amazon Echo, or you know, all that yeah. kind of stuff. Like you know, yeah, and actually, totally. the the other the other part of you know is seeing believing is so we're looking at all these visuals and how we respond to visuals, but the second part of this project, which we haven't even begun to be able to start because we feel like there's so much there, is actually the non-visual and the listening. So. You know, how do you feel when you talk to one of these AI objects and it talks back to you? Like, what, what is that? What are the questions that you're asking? Like, how are you going to relate to that? How do you feel about that kind of technology? Because voice activation technology is just on the rise. And whether people are afraid that it's collecting their data and using it, in a lot of ways, a lot of people aren't caring. They're still wanting to embrace this technology and use it. I mean, we've seen this earlier with Siri and now we see it with, you know, these other sort of devices, but that's, that's in the future. That's the next part of our project. We still have a lot of visuals to do. Yeah. And, you know, (laughs) Anne and I were talking about like, you know, exactly that thinking, taking this kind of outcomes approach and thinking about use cases. And we think about Mm. artificial intelligence. We think about, 
you know, the kind of um, like the, the, the move towards uh, voice activated AI. And we we're like, wow, that's such an interesting challenge for designers, right? And for mm. visual communication professionals, like, how do you visually depict something that is mm. that is heard and not seen, right? Um, and mm-hmm. so, um, you know, and like, very much at the moment, like, you know, we, like, we're talking about the, have this very reductionist approach to thinking around like, okay, artificial intelligence is a robot, therefore have a robot or, you know, at the very, like the least, like to take that one step up, we're going to have a, a brain, right, to, in, to, to kind of um, depict intelligence. intelligence. But when it comes, yeah. yeah. And so now when it comes to things like, like voice activated AI, how do we depict that, right? Because it's not a robot. And it's, it's, you know, like, it's much more, it feels much like, feels weird to depict a speaker in your house, or a speaker in your car as a brain. So it's going to be really interesting to start like that sort of next challenge around um, visually depicting the herd and the, the not kind of necessarily seen. Yeah. Oh, totally. <laughs> There's so many, and it's so funny. And you mentioned that, like, how do we feel when we're interacting with them? And usually for me, I was just thinking like eight, seven or eight times out of 10, when I'm talking to Siri, I usually feel frustrated because she doesn't <laughs> understand me or it doesn't understand me. And it brings up a question that I've thought about a lot too. And it's almost like a thought experiment with, like, should you be kind to these robots when you're talking to them? Or does it not matter? And I'm under the belief, like, yeah, just be like yourself. And however that is, you are to the robot. But I know some people, like my mom, who will say, like, thank you to Siri. <laughs> I always laugh at that. But I think that's like, sweet because I think I think we're not very nice to the technology we talk to. I mean, if you think of calling customer service at the bank or whatever, you're just constantly saying representative, representative, representative. <laughs> and then under your breath, you're like, I don't care. Don't give me 20 options kind of thing. And I, and I think the, the like politesse of that is out the window in a lot of ways. And even if you, I think a lot of with the voice activated technology from my own observations is people kind of start with it almost like a novelty where it's kind of fun. It's a little bit of a joke. And then if it doesn't do exactly what you ask, you know, if that was a human, you, you would maybe joke about it. I mean, maybe you would get mad about it depending on the situation, but almost every time you get very frustrated, like you were talking about, and you don't necessarily talk to it from a place of kindness. And to Lisa's point, of kind of these bigger existential questions that we're going to have to ask ourselves later. And this idea of bringing in philosophers is the more we sort of progress this technology and the more relationships we developed with technology in whatever form, how should we treat the robot with kindness? Like how, how do we kind of develop this relationship that may in some instances replace that of a human? So whether it's customer service or whatever else, what is the bigger impact of that later? How is that going to affect us? You know, Lisa was talking about measuring the impact of things. I think that's really important. How we talk to technology now, we might not think of it as something that matters, but in 50 years time, I think it will mirror how we talk to others as well. I think we've seen this with how people talk to each other on social media, even where you are still talking to a human, but you're doing it through this technological channel. Um, and I personally, I think it's a really interesting question and it's a really interesting thing to think about, but I don't necessarily practice what I preach because I'm definitely yelling at like customer service or robots or whatever. And it's a very instinctual thing because I don't think it has any feelings and I don't think it cares, but what if it does later? You know, I don't know. I don't know, but uh, I, I think it's a big question and maybe we should all just well, be nicer. You bring up a huge point is that, yeah, we start out now by just talking to our phones like that. But who knows, in 50 years, we could be conditioning ourselves to be talking like that. And it's very hard to get out of that and switch. Mm-hmm. OK, now I'm talking to a robot so I can be 
really frustrated and whatever. It doesn't have feelings and it doesn't care. And then we go and we talk to our spouse and we are still in that mode or we aren't able to switch. And so that is really an interesting thought on, again, on these unintended consequences that we have to look at and we have to be very vigilant of uh, I think right so. now. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think there's a really interesting thing there around, you know, if we look to the future and we think about each of us having our own personal AI and how you need to train that AI, right? So training that AI will be kind of akin to raising a child, really. Um, and so, you know, the more you want from that AI, the more you need to engage with it in an appropriate manner in order for it to learn from you and in order for it to be able to mm -hmm. kind of tailor its its results to you, right? So there is something about that kind that that sort of relationship that you um, that you invest your the time that you invest in that relationship with that with that machine with that artificial intelligence, and the kind of value that you will get in return because AI has so much machine learning built into it, right? That it's learning from you, um, and and that's what will make it better or worse for you potentially in the future. What is it? Garbage in, garbage out. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Totally. I would use a different word than garbage. But, mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is a great one. Well, I think this is a perfect segue into the last question that I like to ask every guest. And so, Lisa, I'll start with you. Are you a robot? <laughs> no, I'm definitely a human. <laughs> All right, and Anne? I'm definitely human. Yeah, way too complex for a robot. <laughs> oh, Anne, that was great. <laughs> <laughs> well, I love being able to sit down and talk with you both. You make my job easy. You're so, so great to talk to. And it is very, very fascinating to hear about what you are doing with Seeing is Believing. We're going to link to all of that and everything that you're doing in the show notes. And if anyone wants to find out more about the project, is there a specific place that you would tell them to go? I think contact us if you'd like to know more. Yeah, which I think, and if Lisa, that's still fine with you. I've sort of gathered most of it from my company's general email address. And then Lisa and I always discuss whatever yeah. comes in. So that is just info at culture-a.com. Perfect. Well, thanks again. And we will see you later. Have a great day, everyone that is listening. Thank you so much. That's been great.